Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that we gain again more of a sense of the value of knowing you and the life you died to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. We've kind of had a hiatus a couple weeks because we left John 7, verses 38 and 39, to talk about this great promise Jesus had given that if you'd believe in him, you'd have waters or this overflowing well of life in yourself. And so we talked about the Holy Spirit for a couple of weeks related to that. We're back in John 7 this morning, and before we get there, I inspect houses for a living, and I, I love housing for numerous reasons, I suppose. So uh, for many years, I've watched the uh, the show, kind of the original, uh, This Old House. You know, that's the first of many, many shows that replicated it. But they added a second half hour programming to their show, and it's just about home repair. It's not redoing a whole house or starting over someplace, just home repair. And a segment in this newer portion of their program one of the guys brings out a tool or an implement or a pe- an apparatus of some sort, and it's, and it's never been anything I've seen before. And then they bring it out on the table in front of their cohorts on the show, and they ask them, what do you think this is? What is it, and what is its purpose? And, you know, this is all done tongue-in-cheek with the guys on the show, and they give you their outlandish guesses. But, you know, the thought is something like, I see something I've not seen before, and then I use... My history of of what I know about building or trades or what have you, and then I look at this thing, and then I try to assess, I make an educated, calculated guess about what this thing is and what its purpose is. I try to assess, take all the information I'm able to, assess what is this thing, what's it for, what do I do with it? And in John 7, as we're wrapping up, we're closing out John 7 this morning, uh, this is exactly the kind of scenario that John paints through this whole chapter. John holds up this enigmatic, itinerant, headline-grabbing preacher from Galilee, this guy Jesus, and he shows us through the collection or the assortment of people who are present. He sets Jesus up on the table, and then he shows the assessments that all these folks around the table make of Christ. And before we jump in at verse 40, let me read some of the verses that have already come up in this milieu John paints for us in this chapter. John 7 at verse 5, when they're talking about opening this whole passage, this whole section of the story we've been in at Jerusalem at the feast, it says not even his brothers were believing in him. John tells us among this group he's describing his brothers didn't believe in Christ, in Jesus. Verse 12, John says, There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. But others were saying, Oh no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. In this crowd, some don't believe. Those who know him best, in a sense, don't believe. Others in the crowd, some say, Boy, he's a good guy. Others say, Oh no. Opposite, he's he's leading the people astray. Verse 25, Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this that guy that they're looking to kill? And do the rulers really know that he's not the Christ? This phrase is a little ambiguous, but do they really know that he is the Messiah or do they not know that he's the Messiah? But it's a question. And do the the rulers really know? Is their assessment accurate? Verse 30, some were seeking to seize him, that is to seize him and harm him or imprison him. 
Uh, but many of the crowd believed in him. If you remember when we went through this section, we said this is the middle of the chapter. This is the point John wants us to come away with. Many did believe, but this is in the center of this variety and assortment of opinions on who Jesus is and what he is. Some believed. Verse 32, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. These are more folks. Their assessment is we want to get rid of this guy. So that's the introduction into the passage we're closing out in John 7 this morning, starting at verse 40. So after this grand claim, come to me and I'll give you the water of life, Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ or the Messiah. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. This is comedic. And John's gospel has lots of irony, but this is comedic. This whole presentation of chapter 7 with the claims and the counterclaims, the charges and the defenses. Some say, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the one we've waited for. And others say, well... Maybe, but he, we think he's the prophet. And then others say, oh, no, he's a criminal. He's a bad guy. So here's the same person, just like on this old house. Here I bring out this tool, this odd-looking thing, and, and we've all got an opinion about it. And here's Jesus. He's, he's exhibit A. John's putting him out there. And then we find out all these people have different reactions to him. All these people make a different assessment about him. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet. No, he's a criminal. Now remember, for the audience there in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, they're primed, that is, they know that God has promised a prophet like Moses, and God has promised a Messiah, a Savior. So they're people who are waiting for someone to come along and fulfill these predictions, these promises God had made to them in the Old Testament, on one hand. On the other, though, they're a little guarded. Because both before Jesus shows up on the scene and also afterwards, there were guys, there were false prophets and there were false messiahs who came to Israel and they made claims. And they said, we're it. And they weren't. And over time, it became obvious that they weren't. So when someone else shows up on the scene, and whether he claims it for himself or others make the claim for him, the people have, there's two sides to this. On one hand, they're looking for the fulfillment of the promises. And on the other, they're a little guarded because they've seen others make the claims and it was clear that they weren't what they claimed to be. So they're a little, they're looking for the promise. They're willing to examine, if you will, but they're going to do so cautiously. Now, uh, Jesus is kind of forcing their hand on this assessment, isn't he? Because here's a guy who hasn't just come along the scene and talk to people. He hasn't just taught, but he has performed these miracles. He's performed miraculous signs that no one can deny. And he's performed them up north and he's performed them down south. And there are so many witnesses that there's no denying that this guy stands out of the crowd. Whatever claims he makes, we've got to pay some attention to because he's backed them up with these wild miracles. Remember, he's healed people that were sick. 
He raises the dead. He's made wine from water. And you remember in John's gospel, John paints these miracles in big, big portraits. He makes a big deal about them because God had said in the Old Testament, when the Messiah came, his presence would be accompanied by these signs and miracles. So if you remember, this has nothing to do with this today, but when John the Baptist says to Jesus through his messengers, he's seeking reassurance. He's in prison. His ministry days are over. And he's pointed Jesus out to others, but now he's not so sure. He's second-guessing himself. And he sends his messengers and says, are you the one or do we wait for someone else? Same thing. Are you it? Are you the real deal? Are you the Messiah or do we wait for someone else? Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah and the prophecies, the miracles that Isaiah said would accompany the Messiah. So here stands Jesus. He's made these wild claims about himself. John 5, at least, he's inferred that he is deity. But he's also backed it up with these signs and wonders, these miracles. So he requires, as it were, people to make an assessment about him, people to make a judgment about him, who he is or what he is. It's interesting that among the cries of of the crowd, some say a prophet, some say Messiah, and some say criminal and the end is the the final assessment on all these is he's actually all of those isn't he now we would readily assent to a couple of them maybe not the last but let me point it out like this he is the prophet that Moses predicted would follow him Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen you shall listen to him and if you remember just back in John 6 Do you remember that Jesus specifically made allusions and ties to Moses? He said, Moses gave you the manna, but I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. Moses was good, but I'm better. Jesus made it clear he was associating himself with Moses, but that he was bigger and better than Moses. He was the prophet, Moses said, would come. Related to the Christ or the Messiah, if you're a Christian today, You obviously believe this, but for the Jews in that day, and this is interesting too, isn't it? You know, every Christmas we preach Christmas messages, you know, but there were folks alive and there were probably folks present in this crowd the day John 7 took place that could have remembered those crazy guys from the east that followed a star 30 years earlier looking for a king of the Jews. And there were people probably present right here, right then, who remembered Herod murdering little boys in Bethlehem, trying to get rid of a king of the Jews. And this is 30 years later, and there's this guy. And one of the reasons the crowd thinks he can't be the Messiah, and they say, look, he's from Galilee. And we know where the Messiah comes from. He comes from Bethlehem, Micah told us. But of course, If they'd cared to know, Jesus was raised in Galilee up there in the north, but that's not where he was born. And, of course, Matthew makes it absolutely clear for us he was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah. Or other prophecies, you know, Zechariah, we've come through Easter and Palm Sunday, but he rides into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecies. Matthew says that when he healed people, it was in fulfillment of the prophecy that he would take our infirmities upon himself. 
And then ultimately Isaiah 52 and 53, where Jesus as the suffering servant takes on your sins and mine and Israel's sins on the cross. I mean, this is clear he was the Messiah. But also let me suggest this. He was a criminal. The Romans crucified criminals. And certainly in that sense, Jesus was a criminal. But he was a criminal in the sense that he went to the cross to pay for our crimes, not his own. Paul says in Galatians that cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And, and when Jesus hung on the tree, it was, it was as the criminal bearing, though, not his own crimes. The penalty is for his own crimes, but cursed because of our crimes. So in an odd sense, these varying voices in the crowd, they were all right. He was the prophet. The Jews didn't know that the prophet would also be the Messiah. But he was both, and in a weird sense, he also was a criminal, just not in the way they thought. He was all of those things. Through history, Jesus stands, and he has this effect because of what he did and what he said, where he creates dissension and murmuring about who is he really and what is he really. And you know, it's popular, especially in uh, some circles of Christianity, to say uh, Jesus is loving and he came to bring peace. And there's a sense in which, a great sense in which, of course, both of those things are fully true. But listen to what Jesus said in Luke 12. He said, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, at least not initially but rather division, just like you see in this crowd. For from now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The truth is, Jesus, this, this crowd, this John 7, is just a great picture of history. Because Jesus brings inherently division. He brings arguing. He brings dissension. Because everyone's looking at him, we have to. And then we're making our own assessment about who he is or what he is. And then we disagree. And it's that disagreement that brings the division Jesus mentions here. You know, the truth is we'd like, we'd all like to have happiness and harmony in our households. Happiness and harmony. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And Jesus says, but guys, for right now, that's not what I brought. I bring division. Because in a world that still opposes God and God's Christ, Jesus, we make this assessment about him, and many of us say, no thanks. We don't think you're who you said you are, or we reject who you say you are. And so even in our most intimate relationships, there's division. This scene, this This arguing and this scene of dissension in John 7 as everyone's trying to come to grips with Jesus. This is history. This is where you live and I live today. It's the same. This is going on today. And it goes on not just out there in the crowds. It goes on in our homes, between spouses, in between parents and children and and our in-laws and our outlaws. It affects every relationship we have Because we all have to come to some conclusion. What do we make of Jesus? What do we make of this preacher from Galilee? Jesus doesn't just divide time. 
And you know, nobody can really underrate the importance of Jesus in history, can you? You know, if you date anything, you date it from Jesus' incarnation into the world. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Even if you read scientific journals, they don't use B.C. and A.D., they use B.C.E. and C.E., before the common era and the common era. And what's the common era and the, the, before the common era? It's Christ. Jesus divides time in history, and Jesus said of himself that he divides people. He divides people, just as he did in this crowd in John 7. Now, in our culture, you guys know that we live in a culture that's called relativistic. And, and what that means is that it's popular to say that in the end, it really doesn't matter what you say or I say is true. That truth is relative, that it, if you believe in one God and I believe in another, if it works for you, it's good by me. That's relativism. And in the end, no one's really right, and no one's really wrong. But of course, here you've got a character like Jesus, and he says that for every person on earth, that our eternal destiny rests on what we make of him. That's not relativism. That's, that's hard line, objective statement, which we have to come to terms with. But it's popular in our culture to say it's okay. Whatever you make of him or, or anyone else, any religious claim, it's all okay. But you know what? Jesus stands in the center of time and history, and he stands in the center of culture and time and history today, and he demands that we make an assessment of who he is and what he is, what he did, whether he's what he said he was or not. And we come to some hardline conclusion. And C.S. Lewis was absolutely right years ago when he said, look, you may say many things about Jesus Christ, but you can't relegate him to the dustbin of history through relativistic thinking because he doesn't allow you to. He said you've got to come down in one of three positions about Jesus. And I believe he's, this is true. He said, you can say Jesus was a liar. And the Jews of his day, many did. That is, he made claims that were inherently false. He lied about what he said or who he was. He lied. You can say that. That would be a conclusion. You could assess the facts and you could say, I've determined that I don't believe what he said. He's a liar. You could also say with Lewis, he's a lunatic. That is, he made these wild outlandish statements because he really didn't know truth from fiction. So he's a lunatic. He made claims, but he's not what he thought he was. Or you can say, or he's the Lord. He's who he said he was, and he proved it through his miracles. But you can't say things like, not, not uh, logically, you can't say things like he was a good man. He won't let you. He was a good man, but misguided. It doesn't wash. None of that washes. We can't relegate into some second-rate status where we say it's meaningless what our, what our assessment of him ends up saying. You can't. He won't let you. There's no more important assessment and decision any human being can make than to come to grips with this claim of Jesus that he's God the Son is he the liar, the lunatic, or the Lord? Is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? What is he? It's the, mo it's the single most important question any of us ever come to grips with. And we do answer it. 
Frankly, even to ignore Jesus and his claims is to answer the question. To ignore him is to say he's not worthy of our consideration. We choose not to follow him or believe him. And that's a decision. But all of us walk through time and we make an assessment of Christ and we come to our own conclusion and then we live by it and we die by it. And that determines, Jesus says, our eternal destiny. If we sit here today and we've already come to that conclusion as a Christian that we say, Jesus, we hear your claim, we stand in the crowd, and we say with those others, we believe you, then that's the place hopefully where we all land. And then the question, of course, becomes, well, does our life bear reality related to that assessment and that conclusion? Do we live like we've bowed before Christ and said, we understand that you're Lord and Christ, you're prophet, priest, and king, you're God, Savior, and you're God, the Son on earth? Do we live like it? The other thing, though, is this. When you engage in conversations with others about Christ, do you let them get away with these trite sayings about Jesus was a good guy or he was misunderstood? or, Or do you call them on it? And if you don't just find yourself in these conversations, do you initiate conversations in which you ask others, in the context of John 7, what's your assessment of this guy who made these claims and did these things? What's your assessment? What have you concluded? Single most important question anyone can answer in the world. Jesus stands before us in John 7, Exhibit A, and we all make a conclusion. We all make our own assessment and come to some conclusion by which we live, and by which we die. And the greatest kindness we can do with anyone else is to help them realize that they're making an assessment of Christ as well. And then to help them to make that assessment honestly, at least, wherever they land. Jump back into John 7 at verse 45. Uh, The officers, these are the temple court officers. These aren't Romans. These are under the authority of the priests and the Sanhedrin. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? They'd been sent out to seize Jesus to arrest him. They come back without him. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. This could be understood a couple different ways, this last phrase, but it's it's assumed that they mean that Galilee was not mentioned as the geography from which the prophet or the Messiah would come. But I want to focus on the officers. Uh, this is wild. These guys come back. They're, they're the servants. Their bosses are these priests and these Pharisees that sent them out. Now, they've been sent out to arrest Jesus, and they come back empty-handed. So the guys who sent them ask the obvious question, what gives? Where is he? Why don't you have him? Now think of this, they had the opportunity if they wanted, they could avoid all trouble and they could make any one of a number of excuses. They could say, you know what, there were so many people around him there in the temple, we couldn't get to him. 
Or they could say something like, you know, we got there and we realized if we tried to arrest him with the crowds and the disciples, this comes up later, this excuse or this rationale, we, we thought better of it. We thought we better avoid a larger trouble by not arresting him there and, and, and then. So they had some things they could have said and got off with no trouble from their bosses, but they didn't, which I find interesting. I think these guys came back, in a sense, filled with awe, and their response isn't a defense. It's this. It's, we never heard a man speak like this guy did. There's no excuse. They're, They're not even making a defense for themselves. They've disobeyed a direct order, and they don't even offer a defense. All they can say is, we got there, and we just thought, we've never heard anyone like this before. We've never seen anyone like this before. We kind of lost our mission. We lost our purpose once we got there and heard him for ourselves. I love this. No excuses, no defense. They're overwhelmed. They came away in awe of the person of Christ, having heard his words for themselves. In history... Jesus stands just like he did in John 7. And I love this, the response of these officers who go and they hear him and they say, no one we've heard spoke like this before. If you consider the claims Christ made, they are unique in history and especially coupled with the miracles that he performed. No one else in history has made the claims Jesus made and stood behind it or defended the claims with miracles like Jesus did. He's absolutely unique in history. He, he can't be relegated to the status of another religious leader. And he can't be relegated to the status of just a good man. If you remember in the Gospels, when a guy comes up to Jesus and says, we recognize that you're good, Jesus says, no one's good but God. In other words, don't call me good if you don't call me God. Jesus is absolutely unique. There's been no one else like him. He's in a category all by himself. He claimed to be God. He personally raised the dead, and he personally rose from the dead, and there's no one else like that in history. There's a great passage in Revelation 10. Um, there's this picture in John that wrote John 7, John that was here this day hearing all these people talk about Jesus. John has this vision in Revelation chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2. And he sees what's described as an angel. The text says it's an angel, but I believe it's Jesus himself. If you read the description, it's just like chapter 1 and 2, which describes Jesus. And in this prophetic vision of the future, this angel that I believe is Jesus, in this titanic symbolism, in this figure of a a person who's so large, it says he stands with one foot on the oceans and one foot on the land. And when he speaks, it's this roar that John is not allowed to record and write down. But he stands astride the earth with one foot on the waters and one foot on the land. And I love this figure in the context of John 7 because I think that's exactly what's going on here. That is, 
Jesus figuratively stands astride history, time, and eternity. He stands astride all the personalities of history. And he makes this claim for himself. And you and I today, no less than the crowds in John 7, almost 2,000 years ago, we see this person and we've got to make our own assessment and we've got to come to some conclusion. And Jesus is a titanic figure. We can't avoid him. We can't avoid assessing and making a conclusion. So for us and for anyone else we deal with today, we come to some conclusion like this. We disregard him entirely. We say he's not worthy of future consideration. That's, that's an option. We say he's a liar. He's not who he said he was. We say he's a lunatic. He didn't know what he was saying. Or we call him Lord. And if we do so, we lay our life down before him to worship. I want to close with a story out of 1 Kings 10. Um, in a kingdom long ago, in a land far, far away, uh, lived a prince. Uh, he was the prince of peace. Uh, he was the king of Salem, the place of peace. His name was Solomon. And in his day, Israel saw the pinnacle of pinnacles of their history. Under King Solomon, Israel had the most vast kingdom they ever had in all their history, greater than David's kingdom. Solomon built the temple, this jewel in the middle of the earth, in the middle of Jerusalem. In Solomon's day, gold flowed through the streets of Jerusalem. Solomon's name means peace. Solomon, the prince of peace, ruling in Jerusalem, the city of peace. And you can imagine with the wealth of Jerusalem and the wealth of King Solomon and the wisdom, the wisest man besides Jesus Christ that ever walked the earth, Stories circulated around the world about this king and his kingdom. Now imagine you're someone in a distant land and you hear these stories. What would you say to yourself? Too good to be true. No way. Outlandish. I don't believe the stories. And there was a queen in a kingdom far away. And she heard rumors of this prince of peace and this kingdom that were too good to be true. So do you know what she did? She loaded up her camels. And she came to prove that this guy was not what he was cracked up to be. She came to prove that this guy was not who he said he was and not what he appeared to be. First Kings 10. The queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to test him. This means to prove that he's not what he thought he was with difficult questions. She came to Solomon. She spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. She riddled him some riddles. She asked him the hard questions. She presented her case before him to prove to herself and those others that he was not what he thought he was, not what he claimed to be. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of the waiters, their attire, the, his cupbearers, the stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. What this means is, see, she came, this is like I'm in a fight and I give you my best shot and I realize it's not good enough. And, and I'm defeated and I realize it. And she came to disprove Solomon. And when this says there was no more spirit in her, 
She's assessed. She's thrown out her best shots. And in this assessment of this Prince of Peace and the City of Peace, the Spirit leaves or the Spirit to prove that he wasn't what he said he was. She resigns herself to the truth. This guy is everything I heard, and then some. In fact, she says, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe the reports until I came. And my eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. Solomon, you know, was a picture of Christ. Solomon was a portrait of the greater son of David that would one day come, the ultimate prince of peace who would rule and reign from Jerusalem. And here's the queen of Sheba. She's coming. She's giving it her best shot. She's full of unbelief, critical. She's going to analyze and assess. And in the end, she says, you're it. Half of what I heard, it wasn't enough. You're better than everything I heard about you. And you know, if you've come to trust in Christ yourself already, we should have this kind of an experience with Christ. That is that the longer we know him, the more we can say like her, Lord, what I knew before was good, but you're better than what I knew. And we should be able to take that same experience and share that with others so that the verses we've talked about earlier, John seven thirty eight and 39, that this water of life would come out of us. Our testimony to others should be this queen's testimony to others. You know, when we came to Christ, we thought he'd forgive our sins and we thought we'd be saved. We never realized, though, what a full or rich life we'd gain in knowing him or the peace that he'd bring to us. We never knew how good it could be. And you know, the truth is, too, Others are assessing Christ, and in some part they're doing so based on your witness and mine. And part of that's a silent witness. It's the way we live. They're trying to figure out if Christ is worthy of knowing based on those who claim to know him. But also verbally, they're interacting with people, hopefully like you and I, to determine if he's worth knowing as well. And so here stands Jesus astride time and history and all the persons and the greatest decision in the world is still to be made by many people, maybe some here today, but certainly among those we work with, we live with, we rub shoulders with. And you know, if nothing else, we can help them honestly assess Christ and say, have you really considered who he is, what he did? Have you really considered his claims? It's not enough to say he's good if you don't say he's God. Because he won't let us get away with these trite sayings where we relegate him to the sideline by trivializing something he said or did. It it won't wash. So if we've come to recognize in Christ our Savior and our Lord, I think the best thing we can do and the great act of worship is just to make sure that we're helping other folks with that same assessment. What have you made of Jesus? What do you think of him? Let's pray. Lord, we are forever grateful that you did not wait for us, as the song we started with this morning said, but that you sent your Son to 
bear the penalty due our crimes, our sins, Lord, so that we could be forgiven in him. Father, I know that to say yes to your Son, the Lord Jesus, is to say yes to life and to truth and to reality and to blessings and peace and joy. Father, we live in a world that uh, is jaded and we have so much material blessing, Lord, that it's easy to relegate the consideration of Jesus and his claims to the sidelines, something we put off for another day. Lord, help us as those who know you to remember that Jesus is not a liar or a lunatic, but our sovereign Lord, and to worship him every day. Lord, help us as those who have come to know him to help others in their assessment, just as John the Apostle who wrote these words for our instruction Help us to keep others honest in their assessment by pointing out the claims Jesus made. Lord, may we, by our words and by the rich and full lives we live, bear testimony that he is who he said he was. He's as good as his word, and then some. And that, Lord, our testimony can't bear the half of the truth, of the blessing, of the reality of knowing Christ. Lord Jesus, thanks that in the voices around us we have heard with Peter, we have come to know that you're the Christ. Lord, we rest ourselves, our souls, our time, our eternity on you. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.